You are listening to a sermon podcast from Kingdom City. We pray that over the next few moments, you will be blessed, equipped, and empowered to bring the reality of God to your world. Today's message, I want to bring something that I think is so vital in our lives, in our journeys, in our families, for the generation, for our children. Every aspect of life is so vital, and yet maybe we don't always talk about it. I want to talk about humility. All right. I believe humility is vital in everything we do as the church of Jesus Christ, that constantly we are laying down our life and saying, God, I need you. God, I cannot manage without you. We live in a culture, we live in a worldview that wants to exalt the self, that champions the self, that over, that makes self the gods of your life. That is the worldview that draws you away from the true and living God. And there is a need, there is a spiritual discipline that we need to have, a spiritual attitude we need to have, a spiritual behavior that we need to have where we're constantly yielding and submitting and bringing our lives to God again and again, bowing our knees before God. And it is so easy to lose that in a progressive world, in a progressive city, in a progressive church. It is easy to forget that it is actually because of God that we are favored and blessed and constantly bring that in our lives before God. And I want to move into a story, a common story that we've talked about or probably read before in the book of Acts chapter 9, which is the, the story of the conversion, and this is how it's commonly written in your Bible, of Paul, and his name was Saul, that was Saul's conversion. How Saul changed and that transformation on his life. Probably one of the most powerful stories of transformation in your Bible is Acts chapter 9, where Saul, who was one who persecuted the church, who killed Christians, who came against the church, had this encounter with God and he was completely transformed to become one who becomes one of the greatest apostles of his time and right three-quarter of the New Testament as well. Great theologian, great teacher, and a great passion. What can bring such a transformation? Now, you look at your own lives, and when you decide you want to change one little thing in your life, how hard it is to change one little thing in your life. And yet, God can move in such a move and transform a life so absolutely and so completely from what he was and what he did and what he taught and what was his worldview and what was his belief systems and what was his value systems. And then in a moment, God changes it completely. And this is the power of transformation. And this is what we do need even today, again and again, because there are areas in our life that we go, God, I've tried to give it up. I've tried to break. I've tried not to be so rude. I've tried not to be so angry, but you never break out of it, do you? You need God to come in such a transforming self. We either go down the road where we feel so rejected and so full of self-pity and so full of fire, you know, and we go down this miserable road and we don't know how to break out of it and we need God's transforming power. Or we go into a sense where we're all full of ourselves and we need God's transforming power. We seem to always be in the extremes, never find that place. 
where we walk in a true nature of who we are, not full of self-pity and not full of ourselves. How do we find this place? And the key for that is humility, finding that place. In this story, I want to show you how that happens to the life of, of Saul and how he is completely transformed to be that man. And let's learn from that. In Acts chapter 9, in verse 1, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Imagine when you are in a place where your very breath is so angry, it's threat and murder, it's the very breath that comes from you. How messed up, how twisted, how, you know, you caught up with that, that you're breathing, every thought you have is caught up with something so negative, something so evil, something so destructive, and you can't come out of that place. This is where we find Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples. He was so determined, so bitter, so caught up with destroying the people of God, thinking he was doing the right thing. In verse 2, he therefore goes and asks letters um, from, from, from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, the word way uh, here is, remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in the early church, they were called the way. The word Christian hadn't been invented yet. It only gets uh, in a few more chapters where they really began to call themselves Christian. They just called themselves the way. That means we follow the way of Jesus Christ. So when he found people of the way, whether men or women, he might then bond them to Jerusalem. So what we have here is Paul going, I want authority so I can go into all the synagogues or all the churches in Damascus and any of them who there who says they believe in Jesus Christ, I really want to uh, bind them in chains, drag them back to Jerusalem, trial them before the Sanhedrin and kill them. That's really the background because it's already done in the chapter before with Stephen and he was stoned to death and Paul is not satisfied with the death of Stephen. He wants to see this and that's where this book open up. But in verse 3, as he journeys and comes to Damascus, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. So he has this supernatural encounter. What it does show us is God is willing to come into all our lives. It doesn't matter how bad, how terrible, how evil, how wrong we are. God, in his great love for his people, walks into your history in a moment like this because you are precious, because you are important to him. And when God comes in this power, he falls to the ground and he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So to persecute the people of God is to persecute the God of the people. To gossip about the people of God is to gossip about the God of the people. That's how God takes it very personally. So be careful what you do to one another because God feels it personally, all right? So he says, you persecute, and, 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 and he goes in verse five, who are you, Lord? 
He has no idea. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the gods. The word gods here is a wooden stick, a sharp wooden stick that um, you know, cattle men would use to direct the cattle. And they would poke the cattle with a sharp stick so that they will go in the direction they want. And when the cattle was very stubborn, the cattle would try to kick against the stick. But they'll actually get more hurt when they kick against the stick. And that that's the expression used here. And, and, and it's Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, saying to him, why are you kicking against me? I am trying to lead you into the way that I have chosen for you, and you are fighting me. I am trying to direct you. Stop fighting me because I'm a good God. My ways for you are good. My plans for you are good. You may think you've got great ideas. You may have your own ambitions and plans. But trust me, my plans for you are better than your plans for you. All right? And we're so caught up with our own plans. We go caught up with our own schemes and we try to do all these things. But actually, there's an element of pride and self-serving that comes in. And God is saying, stop doing that. Let me lead you and guide you here. And so he trembling and astonished. Isn't that interesting? We start in verse 1. He was breeding threats and murder. By the time we come to verse 6, he's trembling and astonished, and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the man who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. So the others with him didn't know what was going on. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. And they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. So that's his encounter. But a whole other scene is taking place in verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and he said to the Lord, uh, sorry, and, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who are called on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake." Verse 17, Ananias went his way, entered the house, laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. It's interesting, he calls him brother, all right? This is the man who kills Christians, but look at Ananias. He calls him Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And the rest of it is in the New Testament. He becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, going from nation 
nation to nation, city to city, and bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the man who was anti-Christian, who killed Christian, who worked and gave his whole life to destroy Christianity, and yet a transforming power of God came and shifted and changed him that he became the greatest apostle we have in the New Testament to break and the gospel of Christ. You cannot ignore that message. It is written there for you to understand your God wants to move into your life. What is interesting is God is happy to talk to men, praying men like Ananias, but God is also happy to talk to men who come against him and to release them. This is your God. He has no favorites. He loves them. He wants them. And so you may think only God talks only to the spiritual people in the house. No, he talks to the broken people. He talks to the hurting people. He talks to the messed up. He talks to the one who's still struggling with sin. He talks to the one who just messed it up yesterday. He still comes into your life and talks to you because he does not hold that against you, but wants to draw you into his presence. Now, what we need to understand about Saul in this historical context is that Saul comes from the tribe of Benjamin. The the tribe of Benjamin was where the first king of Israel came. All Israel's kings were from Judah, but one king, the first king, King Saul. King Saul comes from the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul is named after the first king of Israel. He is a Benjamite and his ancestors were the first king and he gets the name of Saul. So there is a certain amount of arrogance and pride in what he has inherited in his ethnicity, in his family line, and there is that that comes with Paul. Now, Paul is also from a very highly religious group of people and family that are known as the Pharisees, who are very proud of their spiritual, their spirituality and how they kept the law. He called himself later in the book of Corinthians a Pharisee among Pharisees. That means that even among the Pharisees, we were higher than the Pharisees. My family was better than the ordinary Pharisees. We were first-class Pharisees, if that's such a thing. So he was very proud of his religious all right, background, and there was that pride of religiousness that he had. Paul also was a highly intelligent young man and studied under a renowned teacher of his day called Gamaliel, and you will find Gamaliel mentioned in the book of Acts. During the time of Jesus, there were two great schools in uh, in Jerusalem and one of them was Gamaliel and only the best would get into that school and Paul was the star student of Gamaliel so you can see his educational pride all right he's full of himself he thinks he knows it all because he comes from a great family background, his ethnicity, his Pharisees, he comes from this religious background, he's well learned, he's brilliant, he's smart, he's got everything and all of it has caused a pride to rise up and all his success only blinded him. There's nothing wrong with success but there's something seriously wrong when success blinds you. So Paul was blind before he was struck blind. 
And God couldn't get his attention, so God had to pull him down from his high horse, literally, and get him to bite the dust, literally, to get him to the place he wants. My first point to you is blinded by pride. Pride blinds us. And I'm talking whether you're Christian or not Christian. You have to watch the subtle movements of pride. It was pride that brought Satan down. And it is pride that continues to be his strategy that he will bring to every one of us. And we can get so caught up with who we are and our achievements and our successes and we can be so blind from everything that is happening before. He was passionate, he was zealous, but he was wrong. Passion doesn't mean you're right. Zealous doesn't mean you're right. You can be so passionately wrong, all right? And he was determined to stamp out what he believed was wrong. He was convinced that his call, his destiny, his purpose was to destroy the church. See the blindness that pride can bring into our life. And the danger is that almost every single day, pride comes and we we, we, we entertain that pride. And therefore, there is a need for humility. There is a need for us to come. But pride blinds us and we cannot see what God wants us to see. Maybe you don't have the answers you're looking for because pride is blinding you. Maybe you don't know what to do because pride is holding you back. And pride blinds us and we cannot, cannot see it. Look at verse from when, when, when God called him. God says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's answer is, who are you, Lord? He didn't even know who the Lord is. He thought he was a spiritual man. He thought he was a religious man. He thought he knew the word of God. But when God spoke to him, he goes, who are you? I don't even know who you are, God. He was so blind. Although he had all the titles of religiousity, he was blind. He was always blind. He did not sense, he could not discern the voice of God. And I think one of the tests is can you discern the voice of God? Because it shows whether you are in an intimate relationship or you are in a religious relationship. In an intimate relationship, you will sense the presence of God. You will hear the voice of God. You will be saturated with the love of God because it's an intimate relationship. But if it's a religious relationship, then I keep a form of religious behavior, but there's nothing inside. Then it is just religious pride. I just think I am okay, and I lift myself up, and I perform but there is something deeply empty and lacking, and I remain blind, all right? When, 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 when he reaches the point where he's struck blind, and he doesn't know what to do, and he, and he goes, oh, what do you want me to do? And God says, you will be told what to do. You know why God said you will be told what to do? Because there was nothing in him. He had nothing for himself. He had no wisdom. He had no understanding. He had no discernment. He had nothing of God. And God says, well, I've got to bring somebody else to help you because you don't have anything. He thought he had everything. He thought he was amazing. He thought he was right. But when the rubber met the road, literally here, because he fell down the road, he realized I had nothing. 
Another had to come and pray for him. Another had to come and teach him. Another had to come and minister because he was spiritually empty and bankrupt in who he was. We have to fear the deceptions of pride. We have to be aware. We have to watch against it because it will subtly slit into our lives and take hold of us and blind us from the God that we love. We cannot push this aside, but daily we need to come before God. You probably know Proverbs 16 verse 18, but the Message Bible puts it very directly. Proverbs 16, 18, it says, first pride, then the crush. That's it. You go there, you're going to fall. And then he says, the bigger the ego, the harder the fall. You cannot misunderstand this verse, all right? It's an easy verse to understand. The message is clear. If you choose pride and choose to lift up, why do we choose pride? Could be for two reasons. One is because we're feeling insecure and we're trying to use something we have done or something that we are and we're trying to lift ourselves to a place of security. But you're not going to win. You're just going to build pride that is going to bring you down anyway. And the other reason is because we think we are able to to do life without God. You see, pride corrupts our thinking, our reasoning, our worldview, and our perspective until we reach a place where we are convinced we can do life without God. That's the lie. I can do without God. In fact, I can do better than God. If I were to have control of it, that's the lie. I think I can manage. I think I can do better. Really? Look at how you did your marriage. Did you do better without God? Or did you reach a place where you fell to your knees and you said, God, if you don't come into my marriage, my marriage is gone. I reached that place, not once, but many times, that I bowed my knee before God and said, God, I don't know what to do anymore. And God came. But you see, I had to fall on my knees and give up the pride where I thought, because of who I am, because of what I've read, because of what I teach, surely I know how to be a good husband. How wrong I was. Because pride came and blinded me. The only way I and you will be good husbands and wives, good fathers and mothers, is because we're dependent on God. Because constantly we're telling God and he brings the heart he brings the emotion. The truth is we were made to be completely dependent on God. From the beginning of time we were made to walk in this union, this dependency, this intimacy with God. We were never meant to be separated from God or to do any aspect of our life without God being the center and leading us. That is the lie that pride brings. It is the same lie that brought Satan down. It is the same lie that brought Adam down. And it is the same lie that is standing at the door of your life waiting to get you down. Don't ignore it. Don't think you are able to live a life without 
God. You need God. Then in verse 9, we see this powerful statement. For three days, he was without sight, neither ate or drank. For three days, this proud and powerful and intellectual, brilliant and disciplined man, he had many good things, is now brought down to his knees. And for three days, he sits there blind. Imagine being struck blind. And now he's realizing that his physical blindness is only a manifestation of his spiritual blindness. He was always blind. He didn't know. He thought he was so smart, but he was always blind. And now his physical blindness, he sees, and he has this moment of looking at this blindness, which brings me to the second thing I want to show you, set free by humility. Blinded by pride, but set free by humility. Humility is one of the most powerful gifts that we receive from Christ. Let this mind, which was in Christ Jesus, be also in you. He's giving you his humility. He's giving you his mind. He's saying, here, I will give you. He gives it to you. And the Bible says, take on that humility of Christ. Take on that nature of Christ. Take on because it is in these moments of encounter where food and drink is not important. It is in these moments that you are so aware of your blindness, your arrogance, your shortcoming, your self-made man or woman didn't achieve anything, and you are so desperately in need for God. You know, we're all going to have a Damascus experience, maybe a couple of it. Every time you try to ride your house, God will bring you down. Because you're going off the road. You're being deceived by the enemy and your mind. And he will bring you down again and again. In every aspect, in your work, in your finances, in your marriage. If you try to be independent and do it away, your loving God is not going to let you get away. He will bring you back because he knows it is only through the connection with him you will rise up and be the person God has called you to be. He knows that. And again and again, he will bring you. These will be seasons of humbling, of repentance, of confession, of surrender, of laying down our lives, of yielding to God, of surrendering and uprooting the seeds of pride that has found its place in our heart, our mind, our worldview, our attitude, our finances. They get in everywhere to bring you down. And they have to to be a Damascus experience. There has to be a season where we have to stop and say, God, I am blind. I cannot see my way. I am not interested in food and drink. I need you, God. I need your heart. I humble myself. I confess. I admit I cannot live my life the way you want me to do. I don't even know where to go. And I messed it up again. And I find myself stuck once again, trapped in a broken marriage, trapped in the bitterness of my heart, trapped in sexual addictions, trapped in my greed for money, trapped in my personal ambition, and I cannot get out of it. And he'll pull you down. 
Not because he's bad, but because he's caring. Because he's loving. Because he has a plan for you, better than your plan. And he'll bring you down to a place of yielding and humility. He'll bring you. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 3. This same Saul, who was pulled down from his high horse, now writes in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. And I read from the Passion Translation. And he says, God has given me grace to speak a warning about pride. You have to smile when you say that, all right? After what he's gone through, with such humility, he says, hey, I'm going to talk to you about pride. I know, I know, I know you're going to point the finger and say, what about you, Paul? Yeah, I know that. I messed it up and God brought me down. And now he's given me a grace out of my painful journey. Because I lifted myself so high and he brought me so low. Let me speak to you again. Sometimes that's important. Do you know there's so many people who need to hear your story of being humbled by God? But we're always talking of how great we are. But actually they need to know how God humbled you and to understand their God and to understand themselves. And we never talk about that. Certainly don't see that in social media. All right, God humbled me today. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Uh, but, but, but he goes, I'm going to talk to you because God told me about, you know, of the warning of pride. And he said, I would ask each of you to be emptied of self-promotion and not create a false image of, of importance. He said, empty, empty yourself. He uses the word kenosis, to pour out. It's the same word used in Philippians where Jesus emptied himself and became obedient. He's saying, empty yourself, pour it out. Come before God, empty. Because without realizing, we fill ourselves with a sense of self-promotion, of importance. And then we create this false image of who we are. And then we worship this false image. And before you realize, there's an idol living in your heart. And you are that idol. You don't even realize that. You become more important than God. Your words are more important than God. Your choices are more important than God. You think you are wiser than God. Are you not an idol in your own heart? And there you have come. And he goes, instead, honestly, assess your worth by using your God-given faith as the standard of measurement. Don't you success from another perspective, from world perspective, from family perspective, from ethnic perspective. Don't use all that. Use God's faith as a standard of measurement. Don't make up your own measurement. Of course, the world screams its own ideas of success and achievement. But it's a false world. It will pass away. It promises, but it won't deliver. It fails again and again. And he says, come on, use a faith standard of measurement. And then he says this, then you will see your true value. See, so pride blinds us. We don't even know who we really are. Humility begins to set us free that we can see. and We recognize who we really are and what God has called us to do. And we know we can lay hands on the sick and they will be healed because of who we are in Christ. 
We know we can preach the gospel and people will change and come to Christ. Not because I'm a great preacher or you are a great speaker. It's because Christ dwells in you. It's because the Spirit uses you. Can you realize the esteem is correct here? All right? It is well done. It is appropriate self-esteem. It is a true value, which brings me to my third point. Identity and destiny restored. When we bring down pride... And when we begin to embrace a lifestyle, an attitude of humility, we become so clear and so aware of who we are and what God has called us to do. When we're blinded, we think we're something else and we do something else, just like Paul. He did something so completely wrong. Thought it was right. Thought it was God. Thought he was spiritual, but didn't even know the voice of God had no relationship with God at all. And here we find an identity is restored again. Here we find him going, I know who I am. And that's really interesting how it was said. Now I'd like to kind of go off in a tangent and take you to a verse that most of you know in Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. And it says in verse 14, if my people who are called, and I think the my is so important, if my people, that's us, who are called by my name, that's Jesus, will humble themselves. See, even before God says, we'll pray, he says, you've got to humble. That means the religious prayer is arrogant. And it's not going to have any effect on heaven. It is the prayer of humility that he looks for. And maybe you didn't get an answer to your prayer because the spirit in which you prayed was wrong. You're praying for something and God goes, I need a humble heart. I need a yielded spirit. I need one who will say, God, my life is yours. I need one who will say, God, what do you want me to do? Not one who's saying, this is what I want to do, will you come and bless me? All right? That means you're saying, God, I know what I want. Don't tell me what I want. I just need you to bless it. That's all. All right? You do your little bit. The rest is me. I can manage very well. Can you see the arrogance in that? Can you sense the arrogance in that? And God is saying, I need you to humble yourselves and then pray and then seek my face and then turn away from your sin and I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. In other words, he needs a people, not a person, a people of humility. He needs a church in Singapore whose heart and spirit stands humbly before him, before he can heal the land. You're getting what I'm saying? So it's not just about you and your journey. It is about what God has destined for you, Kingdom City, Singapore, for your nation. Your humility is a key and an entrance for heaven to invade the nation of Singapore. You cannot ignore that message and just be caught up with what I want and what I will be because you are the answer for your nation. You are the voice that will pray and God will move but that voice must come from an inner place of humility before God. 
Let me talk about verse 10 because I like verse 10. In verse 10, God calls this man Ananias. We know nothing about Ananias. He's no great teacher. doesn't sound like he comes from a great family. He's not a, a scholar. He's not from a great Pharisee. He's nothing. He's probably an ordinary workman in the streets of Damascus. A nobody. But when God calls, an Ananias name means God's precious gift. Now God is taking his gift, his grace. And when Paul humbles himself, three days they're crying out to God. God brings grace. See, sometimes God needs you to open the door of humility so he can bring grace. You have to open the door because your heart and your arrogance stands before him and he can't bring the grace to favor, to bless you, to give you the answered prayer you're looking for. Now, the other interesting thing about Ananias is when God said, called him Ananias, Ananias said, here I am, Lord. Saul said, who are you? He didn't know who God was. Ananias immediately knew it was the voice of God. See, an intimacy he had in his humility, he's probably not a great man, probably not a famous man. We never hear about him again. You never hear, you hear so much about Saul becoming Paul, but you never hear about him again. But he knew the voice of God. He knew God, and he said, God, hear my Wow. And God tells him an interesting thing uh, in, 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 in verse 11 and 12. God says, Ananias, I, I gave Saul a vision of you. I showed him your face. And he saw you coming and laying hands on him and healing and his, his, his blindness was gone. Now, what is interesting here is God went and told Saul before God told Ananias. All right? Now, you will hope God tells you first, all right, that God doesn't go to Taiwan and say, hey, I'm sending some people from Singapore to Taiwan, and then says, sorry, I already told them about you. Can, you. can you go now? But God did that with Ananias. You know why? Because God knew in his humility he will hear the voice of God and he will obey. God knew he won't fight God. You know how we fight God when God calls us to greenhouse? Yeah, sure or not. All right, I need five signs and I need four people to confirm it. And then still not enough, God speak to me from the word and let a prophet come from America. We come up with all these things, you know, and God's just like, oh, come on, stop praying, enough of praying, just do what I told you to do, all right? In, in, in that case, but we analyzed God was not concerned because God knew this was a man of humility, a man who knew his voice, a man who would obey him. That's the kind of person God's looking for. That he can go to Taiwan and say, guys, a great church is coming to Taiwan. From Singapore, I will raise them up. And he tells them before he tells us because he knows we are a people who walk in such humility before God. Wow. A people that are like Christ who only do what the Father says. Don't question the Father. Just do what it says. Now, it is true that Ananias did say, God, God, you know the man you're asking me to pray for? You're aware he kills Christians. Um, that's the man he is. And he's got a reputation. He's got a name. And God says, yes, yes, I know. In verse 15, he says, but he's a chosen vessel. Ananias thought he kills Christians. God changed his name. 
chosen. He's a chosen vessel. You may can't see it, Ananias, but go ahead, do what I tell you. He's chosen. He's chosen to stand before kings and preach the gospel. He's chosen to go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel. He's chosen to come to the house of Israel and speak. He's chosen. Yes, he will go through a journey of obedience and it can be painful, but he will become because I have chosen him. You see, identity and destiny awakened with humility. We can't afford to ignore the call to be humble. Every day, in every circumstance, to yield, to humble ourselves, to lay down our life and say, God, take away any thought, any mindset, any attitude, any emotion that has found its way and I'm caught up with me and myself. Take it all away because I want to hear your will. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you have never entered into a relationship with Jesus, we want you to know that He loves you very much. So much that He died on the cross for all of your sins that stood between you and God. If you would like to make a decision to follow Jesus today, all you need to do is to repeat this prayer. Dear God, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I admit that I'm not right with you and I want to be right with you. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe with my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of my life. Thank you for saving me and making me your child. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time or if God has done anything in your life because of this podcast, we would love to know. Email us at testimony at kingdomcity.com.